The third faculty member reviewing the San Antonio meeting is Dr. Cliff Puttis, who began by commenting on another in a series of reports from his own institution, Memorial Sloan Kettering, on the use of dose-dense AC-paclitaxel trastuzumab in the adjuvant setting. This was the result, really, of some protracted discussions early in the development of the randomized adjuvant trastuzumab trials. I have to back up a little bit to 2003. At that point, we knew that the dose-dense delivery of AC-paclitaxel looked superior to conventionally scheduled paclitaxel. The adjuvant trastuzumab trials were actually in the middle of their accrual period at that point, and we had a long series of negotiations with a lot of interested parties in terms of maybe incorporating dose-dense therapy into those trials. That was not to be for a variety of important regulatory and other reasons, but we were specifically asked to do this pilot study to demonstrate cardiac safety. At that point, all we knew was that in a first pass, we had not seen any excess cardiac toxicity with dose-dense therapy. In fact, the only acute cardiac death in Mark Citron's trial was with a Q3-week single-agent treatment patient. So we felt emboldened to go ahead and do this. As it turns out, when we updated 9741 last year at San Antonio, the total number of grade 3 or greater cardiac events was 12 out of about 1,000 Q2, and it was 24 out of 1,000 Q3. So while I wouldn't stretch to say that dose dense is safer, I'm very confident in concluding that it's certainly no more dangerous. The next thing I just have to put in background here is that in the randomized national studies, there's been about a 10% dropout rate from the beginning of AC till the end of the four doses of AC. And this has been brought up by discussants many times in highlighting why anthracyclines could be a problem in the trastuzumab trials. Those dropouts were based on a drop of 10% in the ejection fraction. And the studies, as you know, had slightly variable criteria for what constituted a cardiac event. So that's the background. Based on that, Chow Dang, on my service, led a single institution study that specifically looked at the safety of dose-dense AC and paclitaxel with trastuzumab. We incorporated precisely the cardiac monitoring and rules for dose adjustments that were used in NSABP B31. So we had a baseline EF, a follow-up for AC, a follow-up three months in, and a follow-up at nine months in with the trastuzumab. And the bottom line is, A, there were no dropouts out of 70 patients going through the AC. And that came as a little bit of a surprise. If the national statistics were right, we should have lost in the neighborhood of seven patients. Subsequently, we had one case of congestive heart failure, three cases of asymptomatic declines in ejection fraction, and of course, no cardiac deaths. Given our pre-planned threshold for calling this safe versus not safe, we come in on the safe side. And indeed, I will tell you that we are comfortable moving forward with this as a routine matter. Our follow-up trial is incorporating lapatinib into this design. One of the comments that does come up with some regularity is how sure we can be without a randomized trial. And I appreciate that, but A, I'm certain that nobody wants to randomize for trastuzumab in this setting at this point, knowing what we know about its effect. And conversely, with the especially striking benefits in ER-negative patients, I don't believe most clinicians are interested in randomizing for Q2 versus Q3 here, even if they harbor some conservative view about the Q3 scheduling. The Q2 is, as you know, faster, but it's also not any more dangerous and indeed in some ways is safer. So I think that this is one of those questions that we won't be able to address with a randomized trial. And this phase two may be the definitive last word on the topic. 
One of the questions that's been banging around ever since the first presentation of the CALGB dose-dense study is a question of whether docetaxel can be used in a dose-dense platform, and paper 2104 addressed that with a phase 2 trial. Can you talk about that? The eligible patients in this trial were women with lumpectomy or mastectomy, and the randomization was in a phase 2 fashion, and the question was who could complete which sequence. There are a couple of comments to make here. The first one is that they observed that the taxing before the AC was a little bit easier. That is, they had a higher relative dose intensity. And interestingly, that's consistent with what George Sledge reported in the context of trastuzumab in that 200-plus patient randomized ECOG trial that's been reported previously. And there may be toxicity reasons to favor that. This trial per se is not a test of dose density because both arms got the same dose and schedule of administration. If you were going to give docetaxel in your dose-dense regimen, then indeed this sequence would be the better one, it seems. I will, however, point out one other point, and that is that to test dose density in terms of docetaxel, you would have to compare 75Q2 to 75Q3. And I suspect that it would be superior. But this is one of those places where there tends to be a little bit of vagueness because the standard dose of docetaxel is actually 100 per meter squared. And I want to point this out that in last year's ASCO, when carboplatinin docetaxel was compared to docetaxel, the docetaxel dose was 100 versus 75 in combination with the carbo of AUCF6. And remember, that was John Forbes' presentation, and they were more or less equivalent. The answer being, well, the carbo arm, while forcing the dose reduction, might be better because it's a little bit less toxic, and they were equivalent in efficacy. So I do think one has to be very open to the possibility that 100 of docetaxel is actually more active than 75. And pushing down the dose just to give it Q2 in the absence of data that one or the other is truly better would be, I think, an important area for study rather than assumption. Do you think there's any role for the non-protocol use of docetaxel on a dose-dense platform right now? I really don't see it unless if you're a clinician who's routinely giving 75, not 100, now you have feasibility for 75Q2, and I think you have good theoretical reason to think that it's never going to be less effective, and it might be, certainly it'll be faster and it might be safer. I think that that's something that a clinician could consider on an individual basis, but I'm cautious because overall compared to the standard 100 dose, I don't know what compromise we're making or not making with this. What about the paper 6078 looking at dose intensity and hematologic toxicity in older patients? Right. Well, fundamentally, the question of aging and tolerance for chemotherapy remains a very important issue because there is a correlation to a large degree between a variety of morbidity factors and age, but it's not an absolute correlation such that age is not the sole determinant of tolerance for treatment. And what these investigators did is that they did sort of a broad, if you will, survey. They randomly selected practices around the country, and they selected from those practices older patients to look at their tolerance for treatment. Their patients had to be over age of 65, equal to or over 65, and they had to be receiving adjuvant systemic chemotherapy with a decent performance status. And what they saw fundamentally is that it wasn't age that predicted their toxicity, that it actually was the presence of two or more comorbid factors, which they've quantified in the presence of anthracycline-containing regimens. Interestingly, the use of prophylactic growth factor support in this patient population was relatively low, I think lower than a lot of clinicians might have predicted for that age group. It was below 20%. 
And in that cohort of patients, though they were able to demonstrate that the prophylactic use of GCSF was associated with a lower risk of febrile neutropenia, there's an important wrinkle here. The patients weren't randomly assigned for the use of the growth factor. And your first pass assumption would be that only the higher risk patients would have been empirically selected, and yet they saw a reduction in febrile neutropenia. That's an interesting issue because they did not see a priori difference in the relative dose delivered of the drugs for those two groups of patients. So it's not the case that they were pushing the drug dose up because they were healthy and compensating with growth factor. It really looks like fundamentally the growth factor probably was effective in this age group. You know, it's interesting because you, know, you have all the guidelines that are coming out with the 20% risk, a number that's been out, and you see a bunch of modifying things that they ask you to consider, and one is age. And one of the things that I don't know that this data addresses is the impact if you develop febrile neutropenia based on age and performance status and the question of even if you're looking at less than a 20% risk of febrile neutropenia, is the morbidity when that occurs greater in the elderly? What do we know about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we know enough about it because, of, again, the modifying cofactors. One would presume that febrile neutropenia would be a more likely toxic and lethal event in older versus younger patients. We just assume the reserve is less. But more and more, we're learning that there are all different kinds of older and so I think the point in this abstract and many others at this point is that the numerical age is not the issue so much. Another paper that Gary Lyman presented was 6083, looking at a risk model for neutropenic complications. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this is a pretty large undertaking. This was a trial that prospectively tried to both develop and validate a risk model for predicting neutropenic complications in early-stage breast cancer receiving adjuvant therapy. And between 2002 and 2005, they accrued more than 1,400 patients at a variety of breast centers. I think 117, they said, randomly selected practices in the U.S. And the stage and so forth of patients aren't quite so important because they're all candidates for adjuvant systemic therapy, and that was the real question here. Roughly 1,200 patients were actually valuable, and they had just under 400 neutropenic events in cycle one. And in both the original data set and then in the validation data set, they didn't see any difference in the distribution of the potential risk factors. And so in the end, what they were able to say from this is that their model is actually a pretty good predictor of the risk for first cycle neutropenia. And the implication, of course, would be that application of their model could allow clinicians to more selectively recommend for or against the routine use of growth factor support. What were the key factors in the model? The major independent clinical risk factors for cycle one included things like high glucose, elevated creatinine, and pretty serious medications like immunosuppressive diuretics and phenothiazines. And some of these, I think, are not what you'd expect. Of course, myelosuppressive drugs like anthracycline-based chemotherapy as opposed to non-anthracyclines would be a risk as well. Specific chemotherapy regimen was a very important one, including especially the TAC and the CAF-type regimens. And increased dose intensity was as well a risk factor. So for me, the take-home was that some of the risk factors are clearly obvious ones, like combination full-dose chemotherapy. Some of them catch you by surprise, like diuretics and the phenothiazines, which I don't think oncologists have thought a whole lot about in the past. I would say that diabetes and elevated creatinine certainly convey the perception of generalized risk, but I don't think people have thought about them specifically for febrile neutropenia. 
You know, it's interesting because TAC, you know, being a risk factor, you think that most people understand at this point that if you're going to use TAC, you have to use preemptive growth factors. But Gary has told me that a substantial number of people in the community don't. And I guess this is part of where the data came from. Interestingly, there are parts of the world, ex-U.S., where growth factor support is only reimbursed once you've had a febrile neutropenic episode. And so when we talk, for example, about dose-dense therapy, and it would apply to TAC as well, you can't give the growth factor until something bad has already happened. Yeah, that's not good. I want to ask you about paper number 46, which is an interesting study comparing nabpaclitaxel to docetaxel that Bill Gratishar presented. This is a Phase two randomized trial, the purpose of which was to identify an optimal dose and schedule of the albumin-bound paclitaxel to take forward into a definitive phase three. I have some views on this study, which I don't know if they're shared by everybody, but they set out to do this trial, and the primary endpoint to select the best regimen was progression-free survival. I believe at the time of the presentation, they showed statistically significant results for response rate and trends for progression-free survival. So what they set up was three dose and schedules of NAB, and specifically they looked at 300 per meter squared Q3. That's a higher dose than most clinicians are using, but they wanted to explore that dose. 150 Q a week, three weeks out of four, and 100 Q week, three weeks out of four. And they compared all of it against the gold standard, which is 100 per meter squared every Q three weeks of docetaxel. And this actually harkens back to our earlier conversation that for docetaxel, that's the standard bearer. The interesting thing to me is that across the board, the album and valpacotaxel looked superior to the docetaxel, especially the weekly administration. The two weekly administrations looked more or less equivalent. But here's where things get kind of interesting for me. There were very significant p-values on response for the nabpaclitaxel compared to docetaxel for each of the weekly schedules. In addition, a host of selected toxicities favored the nabpaclitaxel, again with p-values demonstrated. So the query that I think everybody has to ask themselves is when is a phase two a phase three? And why exactly is randomization still needed for this question? The answer will be that for right now, there's no progression-free survival difference. And that's a very fair point because response rate is, after all, being used as a surrogate for benefit. And the benefit that we generally want to see in metastatic breast cancer, if not overall survival, then is progression-free survival. And so for today, we don't have it. But... With only about a 30-something percent response rate with a docetaxel arm, it would be very hard in the end for it to have the same progression-free survival as a 50 to 60 percent response rate arms did. And I think that we have a little conundrum here. The increased response rate, as you mentioned, was pretty substantial. Were you surprised by that? I'm a little bit surprised only because, again, in a phase two study, I wouldn't have thought we would have had the ability to reach this kind of firm conclusion. On the other hand, it's very consistent with what we are reporting from CLGB 9840, where there's an approximate doubling of the response rate as well when we went to weekly paclitaxel from Q3. Now here, the overall numbers were lower, but part of that's attributable to a multicenter cooperative group trial, and some of it may be attributable to the choice of the specific taxane. Both of these things, of course, might matter. But the idea that low-dose weekly therapy could be superior to high-dose Q3 is interestingly playing out with both preparations of paclitaxel. I'll just add one more comment, though. It has not played out the same way, as you know, with docetaxel. It's an interesting point. 
Any thoughts in terms of relative efficacy of weekly paclitaxel versus weekly NAB? I don't think we can really go there right now. I actually have a slide I sometimes show that sets 175Q3 as the baseline for activity and shows that in sort of in multiple directions, you have these superior approaches, whether it's Q3 docetaxel, Q3 nab paclitaxel, weekly paclitaxel. One would speculate that it would be superior to Q3, how it would play out relative to weekly paclitaxel. I just don't think we can answer right now. Another NAB paper that came out was looking at bevacizumab and NAB paper number 1095. Could you talk about that? Yeah. This is the study where a modest number of patients, 27, were treated with either weekly or Q2-week NAB paclitaxel with bevacizumab in a salvage setting. I think this study was actually important, not necessarily the way you would have thought. First of all, it's a little confounded because it's a small trial. The selection of dose and schedule of the NAB paclitaxel was arbitrary, obviously. But there's a different lesson here. Many have conservatively noted that there was a modest benefit of bevacizumab in the salvage setting with capecitabine, whereas there appeared to be a much more robust benefit with weekly paclitaxel up front. This study's not up front. This study's with a taxane, but it's in the salvage setting, and there appears, at least in this non-randomized trial, to be a significant amount of activity in the neighborhood of 50% response rates. So I think that this brings into question the conservative view that the only place you would use bevacizumab is up front and with weekly paclitaxel. Incidentally, I've had a longstanding bit of trouble myself with the notion that lines of therapy are all determinant, and in that regard, this, of course, is consistent with my own preconceived biases. And I guess the issue, too, is there are lots of people who are out there at second, third, and fourth-line therapy who have not had BEV at this point, and essentially, are you going to try it at that point in time? How do you approach that? Well, I have actually railed about this in public, so let me describe two women to you coming to my office right after the other. The first one has got a new presentation of breast cancer, hasn't seen a doctor in seven years, and she's got a biopsy-proven liver metastases, a little bit of a pleural effusion, and her tumor is ERPR negative. So she gets treated with chemotherapy, and because it's HER2 negative, she might get bevacizumab, of course, with it. That's called first-line therapy. The problem I have is the next patient. I get a patient who comes to me off of the U.S. oncology trial. She's had AC, docetaxel, and capecitabine in a randomized trial, four doses of each, three years of tamoxifen, followed by a relapse for her ER-positive disease, a year of anastrozole, followed by six months or so of fulvestrant, followed by about two months of exemestane with progression of disease, and she walks in the door with slowly progressive liver and lung mets and a pleural effusion, and I give her chemotherapy and bevacizumab, and that's called first-line therapy. And that's a simple example of the two extremes of what can be in the first-line category. They're not the same. So I think we have to be much more flexible. The other thing that bothers me just a little is sometimes, depending on who a patient sees and how they're assessed, one can conclude that treatment is working or not working. And sometimes you see patients who've burned through a bunch of treatment without clear evidence that their cancer truly progressed. And to deny them bevacizumab for a line of therapy just because they're up to third-line treatment by the book strikes me as a bit unfair. We've put my philosophy into practice, I will tell you, at our center Patients who are otherwise healthy and otherwise candidates for bevacizumab are actually evaluated for one line of therapy with it, no matter where they are in the disease course. 
I guess this issue kind of gets into the question of when do you use a therapy, particularly one that has a lot of costs in terms of where is the evidence. And I don't know that we have that much evidence that bevacizumab doesn't work in second and third and fourth. I mean, we have the Cape Cytobine study, but certainly we don't have very much data. We know it works in first-line disease. I'm a patient. I know that there's an agent out there like that. I don't know that I want to die without trying it. On the other hand, and it is expensive, of course, compared to other treatments, although I take a broad view of this. In the grand scheme of healthcare and what we spend as a nation on antilipid agents and antihypertensives and so forth, it really doesn't represent, as I understand it, all that big an issue. It's a big issue for a very small group of people and not a big issue from a public health point of view. And I don't mean to be an apologist for anybody, but I just want to highlight that. We have to think in broad, not narrow terms. I would assume, and I think we've all accepted, that improved disease-free survival means better palliation of disease. That's not 100% true in every case, but it's a reasonable thing. And I, therefore, agree with you that it's a reasonable thing to try. Finally, I never viewed the Cape Cytobine trial as negative. As designed and analyzed, it's negative because progression-free survival, the primary endpoint of the trial, was not improved. On the other hand, there was a clear evidence of a biologically important signal, which was a doubling of response rate for CAPE plus BEV versus CAPE cytobine alone. And that's a clue that I think is worthy of pursuit. And in fact, some of the other abstracts here do pick up on that, as you know, in the non-randomized fashion. And I guess the only disease I can think of where we do have randomized data in the second-line setting would be colon cancer, where they did see an advantage. As I said, I think that in some patient populations, you would see an advantage. And, you know, the last thing is that the Cape Cytobine trial was randomized, but it wasn't overly large. And maybe a modest difference was missed there that would be clinically important. I don't know. Well, we'll see. I guess there's going to be the Cape Cytobine bevacizumab Excalibur study in the first-line setting that's going to get reported hopefully in the near future. And I might add there are the ribbon trials, which actually have Cape Cytobine as one of their cohorts. Right. Let's talk about a paper that Lee Schwartzberg presented, number 1096. Again, another NAB-Paclitaxel paper, this in combination with capecitabine. Yeah, so this is kind of a classic phase two that medical oncologists routinely, of course, need to perform. In this trial, NAB-Paclitaxel is given on day one and day eight along concurrently with a 14-day cycle of capecitabine. And so this is part of a broad stream of medical oncology efforts to combine two drugs into something special. And I actually have no doubt that if you controlled for the dose of each of the drugs and randomized the two drugs against one, you will duplicate the XT versus T experience and you will duplicate the GT versus T experience. But that kind of a trial will beg the always important question of what's the most optimal way to palliate this incurable disease. And I continue to like single-agent therapy for a variety of reasons. I don't know if we're going to get to our dose-dense capecitabine experience, but I do think that capecitabine is not optimally given on a 14-day schedule. And I'm not in any way criticizing this effort. Certainly in many settings, including, for example, the adjuvant setting, this kind of pilot study could turn out to be critically informative. But I think that we have so much to learn about CAPE that these kinds of forced combinations may or may not be the optimal way to further develop it. I guess both Joanne Blum and Bill Gratishar have reported on CAPE cytobine paclitaxel. And I've talked to physicians who put patients in those studies and treated them elsewhere who found it, you know, much better tolerated than the XT regimen. But this regimen of bevacizumab, nabpaclitaxel, and capecitamine kind of has some appeal, particularly, I guess, in a patient whom you need a response. 
That's exactly right. And we talk about that all the time. But as an old now, I dare say, single agentist, those combination demanding patients, I think, are really pretty few and far between in clinical practice. Actually, the next paper I was going to ask you about is your capecitamine paper. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this has been a really interesting journey for us. And I have to spend a little time on it to explain how we got here. The first thing is, empirically, a fair number of clinicians became frustrated with the standard dose and schedule of capecitabine, 2,500 milligrams per meter squared, BID, dosing for the 14 days. We understood that. And the real issue was towards the end of the 14 days, there was an increase in toxicity, especially GI toxicity, but also hand-foot. And so sometimes we couldn't get in the dose, and that would force us to either truncate the regimen or lower the dose itself. We started to play around, if you will, with seven days on and off just empirically a while ago. And interestingly, there was a randomized colorectal cancer trial of seven days on or off capecitabine combined with oxaliplatin and compared against a 14-day regimen combined with oxaliplatin. The seven on and off regimen, although it had lower doses, actually had a higher response rate in that trial. That's going to be interesting for us. It's not directly related to our work, but it's interesting. So Larry Norton and our team, in collaboration with scientists at Roche and Tiffany Trena, who has run the clinical program, began to model both toxicity and efficacy. And I got to say, they have illuminated something that I don't think clinicians think that much about. If you give drugs on an episodic basis, let's think about dose-dense chemotherapy in the 9741. We give a slug of chemotherapy, and over hours to a day or two, there is a cytotoxic effect. And we call that the log kill, the fractional cell kill. We're used to that. But when you continuously expose cells to treatment, which is what 14 days could represent, what you see is that each day in terms of tumor volume, there are changes, but the rate of that change is not constant. In other words, you don't kill as many cancer cells on day nine as you killed on day three. And what really happens is that there's a peak cell kill, which in some of the models is around the third or fifth or seventh day. It depends on the cell line. But after that, with each successive dose of the drug, you're actually, relatively speaking, killing fewer and fewer cells. And the problem is if you keep piling on the oral dose, you're piling on toxicity, and you're actually delaying the initiation of your next cycle of more effective therapy. That's actually a dose-dense theory. So we modeled in a series of animal experiments all kinds of dose schedule permutations of capecitabine, and we arrived at something close enough to seven days as optimal to conclude that we should formally pursue this in the clinic. So Tiffany Trena has translated that for us into a phase one study, and it's been a remarkably frustrating experience in a good way. We have flat dosing without BSA calculations, and we have had to add cohorts at higher doses because we have not hit. At MTD. I enrolled a patient, the fifth patient at the current dose level in the last eight days, and we're giving 2,000 milligrams in the morning and 2,500 in the evening. And we've had responses, certainly, but it's a phase one, somewhat beat up patient population. And it's not clear that we've gotten our MTD with this. So the clinical experience is actually mapping nicely to the preclinical experience. All of this is important because one of the other observations preclinically is that there is a dose-to-response relationship 
relationship for capecitabine. And so getting these higher doses in for shorter periods of time may turn out to be remarkably more effective, we'll see. I have to expand one more way on this, and that is that we think that this could have significant repercussions with regard to anti-angiogenic therapy and anti-HER2 therapy. And we are actively exploring this both with Bev and Lapatinib in the short term and other oral TKIs to follow. And our phase two program is going to include combinations of this new schedule of capecitabine with those targeted agents. So I know I've said a lot in this, and forgive me, but it's actually fascinating because it illuminates something that most of us don't tend to dwell on, which is that continually hammering day after day with a drug just because you can give it that way doesn't necessarily make it the optimal way to treat. Are you utilizing this schedule in a non-protocol situation? I have to confess that when there's no slots on the study... I tend to give the drug on a seven-day basis. But in our phase one program, most of the patients who would ever get it off study are eligible. And our problem with accrual has not been patient availability or even competition from non-protocol accrual. Our problem is that given the nature of this study, our IRB required an eight-week wait between dose escalations because they want us to get through two cycles, two four-week cycles, before we conclude that it's toxic or not. And so each dose escalation has actually taken a while. If I put a patient, the fifth patient, on a dose level last week, it's two months from when the next patient goes on before I can go up again. Are you utilizing this combination of capecitabine and vivacizumab off-study in your practice? Absolutely. This comes back to our early discussion about NAB, paclitaxel, and bevacizumab. We have a fairly large cohort of patients who have had AC, paclitaxel going back for years. And it is true in ECOG 2100 that those patients, if placed on paclitaxel and given bevacizumab, actually showed a larger benefit than the non-paclitaxel pretreated patients. George Sledge has made a big point of that, that prior taxane exposure did not preclude a big benefit from bevacizumab and paclitaxel. But some of those patients have lingering toxicities and really are not enthused about going back on paclitaxel. And for them, bevacizumab, I think, represents a very reasonable non-protocol option, given what we know about the safety of the combination and reasonable response rates, in we think, in the first-line setting. There was a paper that came out of ECOG, actually the ECOG 2100 study that you've been referring to, looking at paclitaxel plus bevacizumab, paper number 5078, looking at quality of life in patients in the study. Can you talk about that? I can. I didn't find it very surprising, but consistent with what you'd predict, they actually found that getting bevacizumab did not specifically impair quality of life in any meaningful ways that they measured. And of course, overall responding, benefiting patients tend to enjoy a higher quality of life. So I think that this is the kind of endpoint that can be useful when there are somewhat equivocal results. In this case, there's such a positive benefit from getting the bevacizumab that it'd be tough to find the quality of life data talking you out of it. I guess it'd be maybe relevant in terms of the upcoming adjuvant trials in terms of how people feel when they're receiving this combination. Is that your experience of basically quality of life and how patients feel their overall sort of gestalt of what they're going through is the same with the bevacizumab on board? I think that this may be an area where our research grasp is a little bit weak because the specific toxicities associated with bevacizumab, as you know, include spending more time getting treated, having to worry in some cases about urinary protein excretion and hypertension. But those are sort of episodic spikes superimposed on a background of relative non-impact. 
So I think it may in part depend on how granular your assessment is. And frankly, you ask about the adjuvant setting, and I understand that, but the truth is for overall survival, I don't know that this is going to be a big issue for patients. If there's an overall survival benefit in the adjuvant setting, quality of life would have to be, I think, significantly impaired before people would be willing to forego that benefit. Let's talk about the first paper that was presented at the meeting looking at patients with inflammatory breast cancer who received lapatinib and paclitaxel. Yeah, this was a trial. There were actually two cohorts of patients, and these patients were receiving, as you say, paclitaxel and Tycur, but lapatinib. And overall, they showed a very high response proportion but it was clinical response that was described. And I don't know exactly where this gets clinicians at the moment. The important thing about this was, of course, the ability to gather up tissue both before and after treatment, which will allow us to explore important indicators of the benefits of targeted therapies. But fundamentally, this says that if you use an anti-HER2 therapy and a taxane, you're likely to get a clinical response. And we kind of knew that already. Well, I guess specifically in terms of inflammatory breast cancer, and this came up in the discussion after the paper, is this really a separate biologic entity or not? I think, again, there must be a different biology because there's got to be a reason that some breast cancers infiltrate the skin and lead to the classic inflammatory changes that we're used to seeing. On the other hand, some of us are surprised sometimes at the time of resection of seemingly early-stage breast cancers to find dermal lymphatic invasion or even small amounts of inflammation. And right now, I don't think we're able to say definitively that inflammatory breast cancer at the molecular level represents a distinct entity. I think that it represents breast cancer that's growing in the skin. I think to me, the, one of the most interesting things about this paper was there was a two-week run-in period where they just got the lapatinib before the taxane was started. It kind of reminded me a little bit of the work that Jenny Chang did with trastuzumab in women with locally advanced breast cancer. They saw like a 30% response rate at 14 days to lapatinib alone. And this is consistent, by the way, if you go back to the early stage four trials like Skip Burris reported, remember, their early hint of activity was in locally advanced HER2-positive breast cancer with inflammatory changes. The photographs that they frequently showed two years ago or three years ago actually specifically showed inflammatory disease in the breast responding. And I think this is exciting, of course. I think that the ability to get paired specimens from these patients is especially important. It raises, though, I think a related issue, which might be the expression of these HER family receptors in normal tissues as part of the inflammatory response. And maybe there's a direct impact from these oral TKIs on the skin itself that may make the appearance of the response even somewhat greater. I will point out that the planned neoadjuvant preoperative component of the adjuvant European trial looking at lapatinib and trastuzumab has the same kind of a run-in period, which may be very exciting from a correlative science point of view. It's also kind of interesting in terms of where we're heading in clinical research in breast cancer. You think about, again, Jenny Chang's paper, I think it was the first time it really was single-agent trastuzumab was looked at in the neoadjuvant setting where you could get tissue, et cetera. And this is, you know, just a couple years ago, well, well into the history of research on trastuzumab. And here we have somewhat similar kind of a look now, lapatinib, much earlier in the course of the development of the agent. It kind of suggests that we're moving in that direction in general. What are your thoughts? Well, I agree, but I do think that there are several factors that are important here. The first is for people with curable breast cancer, and 
inflammatory breast cancer, bad as it is, is a curable disease when we see these patients. Most of us are going to be fairly conservative about delaying the onset of active therapy and potentially harming the patient. So in the case of trastuzumab, we needed to know that the drug was active as a single agent and therefore that there was a reason to tolerate this delay. By the time Jenny did that trial, some of us were beginning to ask about the role of chemotherapy, which is the converse of the question that we started with. And I think that that experience specifically informs our willingness with lapatinib to move ahead and not to be dismissed as the fact that we already have randomized data supporting a role for lapatinib as an anti-HER2 drug. Plus, I also want to point out that Neil Spector has also reported on the benefits of lapatinib in HER2-positive locally advanced breast cancer. He showed that data at ASCO in the clinical science symposia. And so I think that we have appropriately made certain that we're not likely to harm people by doing this with this class of drugs. Any predictions in terms of where we're heading in terms of five years from now? Do you think we're going to be using lapatinib, trastuzumab, or the combination? I don't know. I'm actually fairly enthused about multi-targeting the HER2 pathway in HER2-positive breast cancer. I say that from a couple of perspectives. And the first is that trastuzumab, active as it is, does not cause shrinkage or response in a significant number of HER2-positive breast cancers, firstly. Secondly, in a metastatic setting, there are these amazing cases of prolonged responses to the drug, but the majority of patients don't enjoy that benefit. Most, if they're fortunate enough to have a response, nonetheless have progressive disease. So the first point is that trastuzumab is not sufficient to eradicate or control all HER2-positive breast cancers. There's more to the story. Secondly, preclinically, there's nice studies looking at combinations of targeted agents. And as I think you know, we've been looking at heat shock protein 90 inhibitors in this regard. We've done this in collaboration with Neil Rosen and David Solid, and again, Larry Norton in our group. And it's been pretty interesting. We've reported responses that were predicted by preclinical combination experiments when we've given trastuzumab and an HSP-90 inhibitor, in our case, 17-AAG, to patients with progressive disease on trastuzumab. So I think there's more to the story, and it wouldn't shock me if we ended up multiply targeting that pathway with a TKI, an antibody, and maybe a heat shock protein 90 inhibitor to really drive the system down. And for really HER2-dependent cancers, it's possible that this might be the real grand slam we've been looking for. I'm curious what your thoughts are about the WINS presentation that Rowan Jablowski made. Can you talk about sort of the background of that study and what was presented here? The WINS trial is a really ambitious and important study begun years ago appropriately to ask the question that all of our patients ask, which is, what can I do about my diet to affect breast cancer? Without going into too much detail, it's important to point out that the original hypothesis related to the fat content of the diet and a potential impact on ER-positive breast cancer. And so we accrued over 2,500 patients. They were allowed to get any one of a standard selection of adjuvant, both chemotherapy and hormone therapies, and they were randomized. And they were randomized to a low-fat, healthy diet as compared to the conventional American diet or to an extremely low-fat diet. The early plan was to get to something like almost a Japanese peasant diet in terms of fat content, but that's a pretty tough diet to maintain in America. And so there was a slight compromise. The good thing about the study from a study perspective is that all patients participating in it were directed to a diet healthier than the average American diet. It was a question of healthy or severe. 
in terms of the fat restriction. Over multiple interminalities early on in the trial, there really were no differences. But earlier, about a year and a half ago, there was a first presentation of the data, which suddenly was interesting because there was a benefit in disease-free survival for the patients on the low-fat diet. What was interesting about it and somewhat unexpected is that the benefit was accrued to the ER-negative subset. And essentially, the update shown this year, and I should say the concurrent publication, I think it's this week in the JNCI, confirms that. The ER-negative patients appear to get a robust benefit in terms of preventing distant relapse from breast cancer when they follow this diet. And incidentally, there were all kinds of quality controls and assessments built into the study to confirm that patients were continually schooled in maintaining that diet and checked to make sure that they were. There's a huge confounder in the trial that we can't get away from, and that is that there was weight loss on the lowest-fat diet. And while the low-fat content led to the weight loss, and may have been the cause of the better outcome, it's conceivable that any kind of weight loss would have been associated with a better outcome. That is, calorie restriction, which in other models has been associated with lots of health benefits, might be contributing here as well. And I don't think we get to know. So one take-home point is to point out that the low-fat diet is a good way to limit your calories. And whether the benefits because you've limited your calories or specifically the fats in a way is immaterial. I've talked to Rowan and you about what was involved here. And to me, I don't see it as a super extreme diet that these people are super unusual intervention. You know, they saw the dietitian every few months. If you look at the data he presented, they did decrease their fat. They did lose some weight, but it wasn't like huge. It looked like it was pretty doable. Well, at the risk of misquoting the numbers, given the percentage of Americans who are morbidly obese and obese, and I think it's north of 30%, right? This diet represents a pretty big compromise over how the average American eats. Well, that's true. But on the other hand, you mentioned the Japanese, you know, whatever, 10, 15% fat, and it was over 20%. That's exactly right, because we didn't achieve the 15%. It wasn't achievable, and we were aiming for 20 and didn't quite get there. But still, it represents a compromise over how the average American eats. Everybody who says that they're motivated and everybody says that they're enthused about it, but just like we see oncologists at the meeting smoking, We see obese oncologists. Obesity is a very common problem in this country, and changing your lifestyle over the long haul like this is not easy. The intervention may be achievable in the context of this trial, but of course we only accrued patients who are willing to consider this lifestyle modification in the first place. And their families, I can tell you as a participant, really had to buy into this. If you have a husband sitting at home demanding cheesecake and filet mignon every night, you have a little bit of a hard time cooking in that kitchen for yourself as well as him. Although I know we've talked about how motivated people are to avoid relapse, you know, they'll take chemotherapy for 1% benefit, and you wonder whether the motivation level in a patient to avoid relapse might be greater than the average person who might be doing it for theoretical cardiovascular benefits, cosmesis, et cetera. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, but I think it's a pretty big issue for all of this. And as difficult as conventional treatment is, sitting in a chair, putting out your arm and having somebody give you a drug in terms of personal effort can feel a lot easier than modifying the way you and your family live minute by minute, day by day for years. What did patients tell you who were participating in this trial? Did they find it difficult? They really didn't. I mean, and now I'm speaking anecdotally, of course, but our patients enjoyed participating in this study, and they recognized that this has been an important issue for years. And what's a little frustrating is the extensive amount of lay press 
on this and related issues that was really absent data. And I would point out that this study both confirms a value but also suggests that there isn't a value for a large cohort of patients in the low-fat diet in terms of breast cancer because, of course, the ER positives representing the majority of postmenopausal breast cancers did not appear to get a whole lot of benefit. So I think we have to evaluate this kind of study the same way we do every other intervention study, be it drug or diet. If the mechanism were weight loss or it were reduced fat, what would either of those be in terms of why it would decrease relapse rate of ER negative breast cancer? I think the one possibility could relate to the insulin growth factor, and that's been something that's been explored lately in a variety of contexts. There's discussions and information available about crosstalk between that system and ER and HER2, and that's a conceivable angle for this. This might actually represent an intervention. Interestingly, if that's the case, then there are anti-IGFR drugs in development that could turn out to be very interesting. This concludes our program. Special thanks to our speakers, and thank you for listening. This is Dr. Neil Love for Cancer Conference Update.